Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. Everybody and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We're your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you all kinds of bits and secrets about American and sometimes non-American history. Uh, we are coming at you with a really, uh, I think, interesting new episode. But before we jump into our topic du jour, as always, I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we are the oh, Rebecca's. Um. And let's let's be real with the listeners. What have what have you been doing pretty much twenty four hours a day, seven days a week for the last couple of months, Rebecca? I tour and I sleep. That is what I do. <laughs> One of those more than the other, sadly. Yes. <laughs> So we just want to say, first of all, thank you guys for being such great fans and listeners. Spring season is tough for us. Um, all of us, um, both I and our behind the scenes team of Candon and Dan, we're all out here just in these streets, leading tours, booking tours, just in the full swing of tourist season. So we apologize uh, anytime uh, an episode maybe drops a little late or anytime we <laughs> say that we're going to have something and then it takes a few more weeks for it to come out. Um, we just appreciate you for understanding. We love you guys though. We love our patrons. Huge shout out to our patrons who are the reason we can do this even during the season. Without the patrons, we would not have mm-hmm. the podcast. And we love all of our listeners. Um, So many of you have been coming out on tour with us. I cannot tell you the joy it brings me and how quickly I text everybody on the podcast team when I have somebody on my tour say they listen to the pod. I just want to shout out Anna Olson who was on my tour the other day uh, with her family uh, out on the National Mall. Uh, I just loved uh, hearing like what episodes had hooked her and how she got into listening to the podcast. So thank you, Anna, so much uh, for coming out and hanging out with us in person. It's never too late to book a tour with DC by Foot. You can check us out at dcbyfoot.com. And we are out here seven days a week. Yeah. All day, every all day, day. Every day. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, that's what we do. Yeah. So um, we are going to do a non really DC related topic today that we're kind of uh, stepping out of the Washington DC sphere, which is kind of a nice change of pace from our guiding. And we're going to enter into a little bit of cultural history, which I'm really excited about. I am very excited too. This is going to be cultural history, music history, rock and roll history. We're going to talk about like the cultural event and how it like the ripple effects of it are across generations and how different generations see one event in a different light. So it's going to be really fun. I'm really excited. Rock and roll history is kind of fascinating, particularly 
this exact moment in rock and roll history. So to start with, Becca, let's just start with our title. And when I say the name of the title to you, what is your immediate cultural association? The day the music died, where does your brain go? I immediately go, obviously, to the plane crash in 1959. But I think most people, it's going to be American Pie, right? It's the like radio classic. You can still turn on your radio, not always necessarily to a classic rock station. And the odds that you will hear American Pie are pretty high. And I realize even saying a car radio makes me sound a million years old. Even if you just put on a random station on Spotify or iTunes, you're going to probably hear American Pie if you're listening to anything from the 20th century. So I, I love that. It's that so that has funny. such a strong connotation. People just know the day the music died as this event that's immortalized in this one song. So if you have heard the phrase, the day the music died, it is made popular by a 1971 song by Don McLean called American Pie. And unless you live under a rock, you've probably heard it more than once. It is a very, like Becca said, it's like a staple of like, even 50 years later plays all the time. It is a eight minute long rock anthem it is it's eminently singable it gets in your head and it's you know kind of stays there for a while and we'll talk more about the song a little later but it's a basically a history of the early part of rock and roll like every part of the song means something and the phrase the day the music died he's referencing a real event that happened more than a decade before he wrote the song the song comes out in 1971 And because of the popularity of the song, the event becomes known as what the phrase that he gives it. So it's known now as the day the music died, which is really something when you think about it. A song written more than a decade later informs like how we view this event. It's really like that. Not too many singers and songwriters, I feel like, can make that claim that they like defined a moment in history they were not actually a part of. Yeah, there's no newspapers from 1959 that said the day the music died, right? This was not how it was covered or discussed in the moment. And like the ability of McLean, like you said, almost 15 years after this event to shape the narrative of it is really amazing. And of course, in 59, when this happens, it's hard to understand the impact this is going to have generations later. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is going to become sort of this fulcrum point for uh, music and certainly, I think, culturally more broadly beyond that, but certainly for the music industry and for rock and roll. And I just want to say, we're talking about an event in 1959. Rock and roll is still so young. What we know as rock and roll is in its infancy. Um, There, of course, had been music being played uh, in the 30s and 40s that will uh, in the kind of the rhythm and blues era um, that is influencing rock and roll. But the bands that we kind of associate with that 50s sound on the early years of rock and roll, Elvis, for example, a lot of that's mid to late 50s. And so what we're even calling rock and roll was still very loosely defined when this happens. So it is, I think, with McLean and later generations ability to look back and go, this was a moment because so much about the music oh, yeah. today comes from the three individuals involved in this. If your cultural context for the day the music died, if you're a, like we are elder millennials, which is a phrase I loathe. <laughs> it's better than geriatric millennials. It's true. Oh my God, it's really true. <laughs> If your culture, your cultural touchstone, if you're Gen X or millennial, your cultural touchstone for the day the music died is the song, mostly. If you're a boomer, your cultural touchstone, because you live through it, is the actual event. So what we're going to do here, basically, is we're going to talk about the event. We're going to talk about the people involved. 
Then we're going to talk about its cultural impact and sort of the ripple effects and the afterlives of everybody who kind of lives through this and sort of the song that we're going to talk about. I'm just going to jump back in, though, really quickly and say that we're going to circle back later this episode. And I think there's another cultural touchstone that for certain millennials might even be bigger than American Pie the song. And we're going to see if it's just me and my background or if other millennials listening feel this way, too. I love it. Um, So in the beginning of the song, Don McLean talks about he's doing a newspaper route as a kid and he sees bad news on the doorstep. And I just wanted to point out Don McLean's 13 in 1959 Mm -hmm. and he is indeed Mm -hmm. a paper delivery kid. He has a paper route. So autobiographical (laughs) all the way through. Yes, this is an autobiographical sketch, it turns out. And the, the event that he sees, February 3rd, 1959, Clear Lake, Iowa, which is the northern part of Iowa, there's been a plane crash. And the plane crash is a small plane killed all four people on the plane. A lot of people forget about the pilot, which is sad because he died too. Those four people are going to be Roger Peterson, 21 years old, the pilot of the plane. J.P. Richardson, known as the Big Bopper, 28 years old. Ricardo Valenzuela, 17, uh, known professionally as Richie Valens, and Charles Buddy Holly, 22 years old. And that's the four men, or the three men, rather, the pilot is a pilot. Uh, The three men are musicians. They're rock and roll. This is 1959. So to put this in a little bit of cultural context, we haven't gotten the, and the song deals with this too. The song is this great nostalgia, like, reliving the glory days kind of thing there's a sort of idea that we have that the 50s are like a simpler time and most of that is nonsense but in terms of rock and roll it kind of there's a point there this is a moment before we've gotten into the 60s we haven't gotten to the like the 70s the sort of stereotypically rock star doesn't really exist yet you know, if you think of Elvis Elvis is a thing in 1959 he's a big thing but he's not later years Elvis this isn't bloated Las Vegas Elvis in sequence Elvis is like I mean look at a picture of Elvis in the 50s he's gorgeous he's like you know the hips swiveling and the whole thing that's where we are rock and roll is defining itself it's relatively new it's aimed at the young it's really emerging in so many ways and the three men who die in this plane crash you can't almost can't even call Richie Valens a man he's only 17 it just he is a child I mean he's a teenager it really does it's Um, awful and you can't they're at the forefront of this movement and they're they and we're gonna I'm gonna talk about how each of them were in 59 and then we'll kind of talk about their afterlives a little bit later on uh the big bopper is probably the least famous of the three Definitely today. Yes, I would sadly agree. Giles Perry Richardson, JP Richardson, the big bopper, who I love, not the least of which because he's from Texas. <laughs> Two out of the three of them are from Texas. But yeah, he's not, I think, I think he is not as well known today, certainly, as Richie Valens or Buddy Holly. The song you know the big bopper for is Chantilly Lace. That's the and it's been played, it's been redone a couple of times. If you've heard Chantilly Lace, that's the song that you've heard. And Becca's gonna sing now. I'm definitely not gonna <laughs> sing, but I love Chantilly Lace. It's that it's that rockabilly style which has, you know, ebbed and flowed. But it's a good example too of where rock and roll kind of is at this point. There's so many influences coming into rock and roll. And a lot of it's coming from rhythm and blues, but a lot of it's coming from the country western sound and country swing, especially for these guys mm-hmm. down in Texas and out west. So the sound is still emerging. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, 
I will say to you, Big Bopper, uh, being he's the oldest of the three, but he also kind of illustrates, I think, where the music industry is at this time, which is we think about a, a musician today. We'll use Taylor Swift, who just passed through the Mid-Atlantic recently. You know, big, huge tours, big apparatus. There's a way to distribute your music internationally and certainly nationally. That's not the case at this time. It's all through local radio stations. You don't have the conglomerates that exist today. So that's how Bopper kind of gets to start. He's working at a local radio station. He's filling time, doing kind of bits and characters. Then he's playing. Then he gets three hours that he performs live in studio for three hours. And that is going out to maybe a few thousand people, right? That's the reach. But so much of the industry is localized and it's really through these connections through the radios and you have to tour and you have to tour to go to these little tiny towns to sell your LPs if you've been lucky enough to actually get someone to record you something. So the industry is still so grassroots at the moment. And Big Bopper really came out of that. He came out of of the radio station life. Mm Mm-hmm. The Big Bopper is from Texas. He has a wife and a daughter, and his wife is about seven months pregnant, which is also going to be tragic and heartbreaking. Richie Valens, Ricardo Valenzuela from Mexico. And I want to pause on that name for a minute. He's going to infuse a lot of his Mexican folk style into rock and roll. He is... The name change for me really jumps out. We want your music. We want your cultural influence, but we're going to shade you as white, um, sort of give you a more Anglo name rather than Ricardo Valenzuela to sort of make you more marketable. So I feel like there's a a glimpse into where rock and roll is in 1959. Like you kind of get that sense there. What he is most famous for, he is on the cusp of real stardom. He's made a name, but he's not quite a big thing yet. But he is going to write what will become essentially one of the most popular songs ever. Like literally ever. He doesn't live to see it, but he's responsible for La Bamba. And the song that just raced through your neural pathways, that's recorded in the 80s by a band called Los Lobos, who's they are going to turn it into like the catchy hit. It's based strongly off of Richie Valens' version, but it is not the same thing. I I do just want to jump in and say too, Valens is from Los Angeles. His family is Mexican, but he is from LA. And he really represents, right, this huge wave of you've got Mexican laborer families and immigrants coming into California. They're flooding the West Coast with this Chicano sound. Um, so there's all this folk music that's coming in. Right at the same time, we're starting to get a little bit of that surfer sound and a little bit of the rock and roll. So it's a really um, a little bit more specific to the West Coast at this time. The guys down in Texas aren't quite singing this yet. The um, Southern rockers like Elvis aren't singing this sound. Valens really represents something that's so new to the listeners. Also, we'll just shout out his other probably most famous song, which is Donna, which is this beautiful ballad he wrote for the young woman that he was enamored with at the time. And there were concerns that as he was getting to be more famous, that they were the pressures. And I mean, I can't imagine he's 16, 17 when he's on the cusp of fame. And uh, he writes this love song to sort of assure her that he will be true and that he loves her. And trust me, if you have heard the name Donna, you're probably humming that very popular sound of the teenage love song and the, the girl, the girl named mm-hmm. ballad, right? I'm going to sing about this beautiful girl when you think about like the dances at the gym and stuff. Yeah. And he, so Buddy Holly 
is probably the one you've heard of most. He's the most famous at the time. He has an impressive body of work for somebody who's only 22 years old. He's then become the most famous. He's become more famous since, and we'll get into why that is sort of later on. But he's really, for someone who's only 22, he's got a truly impressive body of work. Uh, he's been sort of on the scene for about two years, not quite two years. He does, like in the song, Don McLean talks about his widowed bride. He actually, Buddy Holly did have a widowed bride. He has a new young wife. His big hit is That'll Be the Day, which I feel like everyone has heard. It was released in 1957, but he's, Buddy Holly has written prolifically and he's got a lot of recordings that haven't been released yet. That's going to become important later on. He also is going to pioneer a bunch of really neat rock and roll techniques that really other artists pick up and sort of run with. The most essential is the sort of basic four instrument setup. So you got two guitarists, you've got a drummer and the, um, what's the other one I'm missing? Bass player. Bass player. Right. And that's like him. Like he, and not just two guitars. You've got to have your rhythm guitar and your yes. lead guitar. He sets that up with the crickets, buddy Holly and the crickets. What's amazing to me is he's really only a big star for about 18 months. Mm -hmm. That'll be the day comes out in 57. This event happens in 59, but in those 18 months, he is establishing what becomes the classic rock band. Mm -hmm. um, Hello, the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> Almost everybody else is going to follow that that rock band setup. Overdubbing, where he's recording himself over himself mm -hmm. to harmonize with his own vocals. We take that for granted today, but he's one of the first artists to do it and do it well. He plays a Fender Stratocaster, which becomes the guitar for rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And he's the singer-songer frontman. That had not been the case up to this point, really in the music industry. The people who wrote the songs almost never performed the songs. You could sell them and you could make money. And most people performing were performers. They were not writers. Buddy Holly is not the only, but he is at this moment kind of pioneering this idea that if you're going to be a musician, you should be writing, creating, and performing your own work. And it's going to set this kind of template that so many artists are going to follow behind. And the fact that he does that. Right. It's so young. In such a small amount of time. <laughs> it's so amazing. And he, he really has this very classic look for the era. He's got these, you know, glasses that are iconic and, you know, looks clean cut and sort of all that. He's very much trying to sell the, like, I'd be the guy that you'd want your daughter to bring home, right? Like, that's kind of where he, Buddy Holly's kind of at. Why are they all on this plane on February 3rd in essentially middle of nowhere, Iowa? They are on a 24-day winter party dance tour. Like Becca said, if you want to attract an audience, you have to literally go to your audience. They don't, we don't have like mass media the way that we do now. And so they're on this tour. They're doing 24 gigs in 24 days, which is literally one a day. It's a grueling pace. It's also February and they're not in like the warmest part of the country. And so they set up and Buddy Holly's biographer will later say that like literally they threw darts at a map and were like, oh, this place has a ballroom let's perform there. And this place over here has ballroom. Doesn't matter how far apart they are. And so they've rented this, like, basically a school bus that was deemed not fit enough for kids. Like, it's not good enough to travel school kids to school to transport the musicians from place to place. And in those days, there's no roadies. They don't have, like, a professional setup. They're literally, like, hauling their stuff on their own, which, fair enough, these are young guys. But also... 
you know, that gets to be a lot when you're traveling like 12 hours. They don't have heat on some of these buses. One guy like has to get treated for frostbite. It's insanity. And Buddy Holly's like, okay, enough. We're all getting colds. That's not really great for performing. I'm going to charter a plane because I'm not dealing with this nonsense going to the next place we're going to perform, which is 12 hours on a bus away. So essentially they're expected to perform at the uh, surf ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, get on a bus at like one o'clock in the morning, spend all night on the bus, get to wherever their next destination is, which turns out to be in Moorhead, Minnesota, uh, basically sleep for a few hours and then do it all again and go somewhere else. So this is a really grueling travel pace. And Buddy Holly's like, listen, I'm not putting up with this. <laughs> I'm not doing this anymore. And so he's going to charter a plane, small plane. And initially it was for his bandmates, but Big Bopper has a cold because again, it's February. And that's what happens to people in February. And he's going to swap with one of Buddy Holly's bandmates. Valance wins a coin flip with another one of Holly's bandmates, a guy named Waylon Jennings, who would carry guilt about this for the rest of his life. And Rebecca seems less into Waylon Jennings is one of like the prolific singer songwriters yes. also of the 20th century. He goes on to have a very long career, but also massive struggles with substance abuse, with guilt. There's a lot of back and forth between him and Buddy Holly before Buddy Holly gets on the plane. Waylon Jennings will say that Buddy Holly says, I hope your old bus freezes up. And Jennings said that he said back to Buddy Holly, I hope that your old plane crashes. So imagine that that's the last thing you say. And here's the thing, Buddy Holly had picked Waylon Jennings up basically after performing at Waylon Jennings radio show and he picked him up, added him to the band. They mm -hmm. become very close. There's a great, I'll drop it in the show notes, a great picture of them in one of those old timey photo booths in Grand Central Station just a couple weeks before this. So they're, you know, they're tight. They've gotten very close. And that's the last thing that Jennings said he said to Buddy Holly. And imagine like just living with that for the rest of your life. And Waylon Jennings lives well into the 21st century, but that's what he carries with him is this feeling that he should have been, he should have been on the plane. And it's basically there's dispute about this because the different bandmates will tell different stories about this as things go on. And there's obviously Buddy Holly, the big bopper and Richie Valens aren't around to confirm it. And so there's a little bit of dispute about how who how Opera and Valance ended up on the plane, but they did. And the plane is going to take off. It takes off normally. Great. 12.55 a.m. on February 3rd. The air traffic watches it for about five or six minutes. The taillights disappear and they go home. They don't seem to notice or care that it never makes it to its destination, which is supposed to be Fargo, North Dakota, which is very close to where they're going to perform the next night. The next morning, no one has heard from them. They send out the sheriff's deputy to investigate, and they're going to find the plane about six miles away uh, in a field, in a cornfield. And everyone on board, all four of them are dead. Now, if you are squeamish, <laughs> this is the time where you want to fast forward for about two minutes. Um, the plane took off normally and what they think happened and this becomes clear after an investigation that lasts for about a year the pilot was relatively new to this and was flying instruments only so he was not he the conditions were terrible it was february it was snowy and he is going to lose control very quickly 
and the plane is essentially hits at speed. So at 170 miles an hour, it basically plows into the ground. The ground is frozen. So it bounces essentially a few times. The fuselage breaks in half. The right wing crumples. It's all bad news. The pilot is found in the plane. Uh, Buddy Holly and Richie Valens are found near the fuselage. And the bopper has been thrown clear. He actually is thrown over a fence into the neighbor's yard. Uh, that's he's found a few yards away. And the coroner is going to do an autopsy. And the cause of death is exactly what you think. They died in a crash. It was unsurvivable. And there's going to be some controversy because there's always conspiracy about this. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But all died on impact. Now, the immediate aftermath of this. And this, again, there's a lot about this that's heartbreaking, but for whatever reason, this detail just always breaks my heart. At that time, when an accident like this happens involving a celebrity, there is no protocol involving letting the family know what's going on. And so Buddy Holly's mother and his new wife both find out on the news, which is gut-wrenching. Buddy Holly's wife, the reason she's not with him is that she's pregnant and he didn't want her in the early stages of pregnancy, traveling on a bus for 12 hours. And she actually miscarries due to the trauma of this. So what this is going to actually later prompt is changes to notification protocol because of this event. They want to make sure that if something like this happens, we've notified the appropriate family members before it actually goes out in the news. So in a way, it, it, it solidifies how celebrity deaths are dealt with in the sort of more modern uh, media age. You can imagine, too, the initial um, reports are that it's Buddy Holly and his bandmates that are killed as well. So they're just, I think, even like in the modern media today, those initial reports are so confusing as to who is involved and who has died and who is actually on the plane. So imagine, say, your Waylon Jennings family. You think, well, he's off touring with Buddy Holly. He's a bandmate. Mm-hmm. He's on that plane. Your Richie Valens family. And you're thinking, well, he's not in Buddy Holly's band. He's probably still on the bus. And so it really does bring to light some of the issues with the way in which we report and notify because of that kind of quick jump to just say, oh, it's Buddy Holly and his bandmates before any real identifications could be confirmed and made. Buddy Holly's widow, I don't know what, she's fascinating to me. She's, as of the recording of this podcast, still alive. She's in her 90s. They had met less than a year earlier. She actually was the secretary at a recording studio and he like essentially asked her out and they get engaged like that day. And it's one of those like super fast, precious little love stories. And they're both 22 and they get married after only a few months. And so they've only been married about six months. And so her whole world has changed. And like, imagine this poor woman, she's a newlywed, she's about to have a baby. And then all of a sudden in like the blink of an eye, it like disappears. That all goes away. It's heartbreaking to me. The There are questions relatively fast about what happened with the flight. There's rumors that someone had a gun on board and that it fired, killing one of them or killing the pilot or knocking out the wing or whatever it was and causing the plane to crash. That is not supported by the evidence. There's also has been always questions about the big bopper since he was thrown clear of the wreckage. There were rumors that he had survived the initial crash and was trying to get to help when he succumbed to his injuries because no one came to find out what had gone on. This is going to prompt his son, who never met him, 
who born two months after his death, his son in 2008 is going to actually have his body exhumed and re-examined by a forensic pathologist. Turns out he died of exactly what the coroner said he died of, essentially gross unsurvivable injuries. He broke literally almost every bone in his body. So the initial coroner's findings were correct. They all died on impact. There really was nothing once the plane was going down, there was nothing anybody could do to save them. Yeah, I'm not a doctor, but I feel like hitting the ground at 170 miles per hour is what it is. There's no, you yeah. know, there's no further conspiracy to be had here. That is. Nope. And unfortunately, I mean, if you have seen even a plane similar to this little four seater, right, there's nothing there to brace or protect you. Nothing at all. No. Mm-mm. Nope. No. The cultural impact of this is really massive. It has been called the first and greatest tragedy of rock and roll, which kind of it was. The three main talents and a lot like the loss of three these three big talents, particularly the age of Valens and Holly, really can't be overstated what like a missed of like a chance they were really all of them, but particularly Buddy Holly on the cusp of real big genuine Elvis level stardom. Like they were going to be a thing. I included in the show notes a Rolling Stone article that was written in 1969, so 10 years after this event, and it really kind of looks at, from the 1960s perspective, of where might all three of these individuals be given where music goes in the 10 years after their death, and it is fascinating and also deeply sad to consider what could have been with all three of these, I think particularly Richie Valens and Buddy Holly, because rock and roll in the 60s is going to explode and it's going to become exactly what we think of it as today. And they would have absolutely been right in the middle of that. And they would have been at the forefront of it in many ways. Uh, I believe that to be very, very true. And I think the other really tragic loss is because it's so early, there's only so much work that existed, especially for Valens, who had not had a chance to do a lot of recording yet. Even Big Bopper, who's older, but in terms of his career in a similar space, um, Buddy Holly, having been kind of that singer-songwriter, had recorded a fair bit of his work, which you mentioned will be important. But because of where the industry's at, we don't have a lot of demos. We don't have a lot of, I was tooling around and I recorded myself doing something like we sometimes have with musical artists today. And so it's just such a big loss because there's such little output relatively that we can take part in today and hear today. Right. And it's at 17, he's really only at the beginning of what he's going to become. Like how many of us are still the same level you know where we were at 17 he's still maturing as an artist and as a a human I would imagine and so we can really only guess at what he would have become given time and there's like the thing about them is it's so interesting because they exist at this moment where the 50s are giving way to the 60s and we all know sort of rock and roll develops it continues to grow and develop uh into the 60s is there a way in which they would they would have become big stars could they have joined the counterculture? You know, would they have gone the way of like, say, a Bob Dylan? Could they have gone the way of Elvis? Could there be a future for Buddy Holly where he becomes the bloated Elvis type in the 70s? It's hard to imagine because he dies so young, but it's the sort of, there's so much that we, we that we lost with that crash. 
because Holly's uh, has so much recorded, uh, not only recordings, but also he's written songs. There's incomplete, um, all sorts of things that are incomplete. His producers who own the rights to his music are going to continue to basically dole them out like breadcrumbs for the next 10 years. Like Holly's last album comes out posthumously about a decade after his death. So he remains kind of in the, the zeitgeist for a while, even after his death. His widow, interestingly, in the 50s, image and naming rights was not a thing necessarily back then, but she, as his legal heir, has retained control and actually to this day manages his public image still. She's still in control of it. That's what she does. She has curated almost masterfully like his sort of image in the, the public mind. You can't really do much with Buddy Holly's image without her say so. So she's been really kind of instrumental in the crafting of his sort of posthumous image. He is, and numerous artists have cited Buddy Holly as foundational. For example, the Beatles name themselves. They're originally, their name is the Quarrymen, as anybody who knows the Beatles knows. They are going to change their name to the Beatles because of Buddy Holly and the Crickets. They like go with that insect theme, which is a bizarre theme for band name, but that's kind of where it goes. Um, Bob Dylan, as a teenager, Bob Dylan saw Buddy Holly's like show two nights before his death. He has this this moment that he talks about much later in life that him and Buddy Holly like made eye contact at this show and like how much that influenced him, how much that meant to him. Mick Jagger talks about having seen Buddy Holly perform in London and he's, you know, he's in all of us. Like Mick Jagger has this quote about how you can see bits of him in the Rolling Stones, in the Beatles. He's in all of us he's so that's how foundational he was uh and so it's buddy holly's legacy is really sort of influencing so many of these people he's inducted into the first class of the rock and roll hall of fame yeah when they basically say we're starting the rock and roll hall of fame in the 80s and we need the seminal you know forefathers of this sound it is elvis presley it's james brown it's ray charles chuck berry sam cook and and buddy holly right like on almost yeah. everyone else who is inducted in 1986 is still alive. Um, and and they recognize that without Buddy Holly, there wouldn't have been the sound that becomes rock and roll. So the fact that he's in that first class, I think, despite having truly only produced a less than two years worth of music, says a lot about mm-hmm. just the quality and the ingenuity and the creativity of what he did create in a short amount of time. And again, what, what more could there have been is it... it it's heartbreaking because there could have been so much more and it would have probably been mind blowing. Oh yeah. It would have been amazing. Elton John wore Buddy Holly glasses as a kid, even though he didn't need glasses. The the Clash are going to be influenced by Buddy Holly. Eric Clapton says the first album he ever bought was Buddy Holly. And he says he saw Buddy Holly in his autobiography. Clapton talks about seeing Buddy Holly in his Fender performing on TV and was like, this is the life I want. Sign me up. That is what I want. Um, and so like, I mean, that's, a, that's generation after generation of artists. And then you think about how many people, obviously the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Elton John and, and Eric Clapton have influenced and like Buddy's Holly's grandchildren are everywhere, so to speak. The foundational aspect of him in terms of what comes later is really can't be um, uh, overstated, I think. Well, and sort of how I think new generations keep discovering him for me. And I think 
if you're around my age listening to this, it's Weezer, right? 1994, mm-hmm. Buddy Holly. It's a whole new generation that hears a sound um, that's this homage to the sound mm-hmm. of Buddy Holly and the crickets. Um, if you think about even kind of the hipster movement of the 20 teens, so mm-hmm. much of that sound comes back again, that influence of the rockabilly coming back. Um, so it's something I feel like Buddy Holly keeps getting rediscovered every 10, 15, 20 years. And that it's like hopefully an influence that will never really fade away Um, because he keeps kind of getting that little, you get that next wave going, wow, this sound still bops. Like it's still great. Nope. It's still something. And it influenced a man named Don Klain, who's going to write a ballad called American Pie, albums called American Pie and the entire album actually is dedicated to buddy holly song is like it's everybody's heard it come on it's like a nostalgic romp through rock and roll and it's an allegorical history so every reportedly every bit of the song means something there's some connection to a real person or a real event like he talks about the king and the jester and all that now don mclean this is a bit this song's a big hit and he's still alive he has reportedly been very cagey about what exactly everything means it's fairly obvious the beginning is buddy holly bopper and and richie valance but like what who the king is obviously that's elvis but there who's the queen like i don't know so he's been kind of cagey about what exactly the lyrics mean which i think is really great um but a little less cagey recently there was a documentary that came out um last year where he for the first time more openly basically broke it down line by line and talked not always as explicitly as I think some music fans would have liked Mm -hmm. um, but talked about these these illusions and allegories on sort of weaves in his own kind of backstory and how not just these three individuals who died on 1959 influenced him, but then how he wanted to honor Elvis and Bob Dylan and, and Jimi Hendrix and, and Janis Joplin and all these other great artists that he's honoring in this song. But if you haven't caught the documentary, it is streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm sure it's streaming other places, but that's who uh, released it. And other musicians talk about how much the American Pie song was like an education for them. Yeah. You know, musicians who said that was my first kind of understanding of rock and roll history. And so it's the most open I've ever seen Don McLean be about what the song's about. And a lot of things you always assume to be true, he confirms are indeed true uh, in terms of, I've always thought this was a reference to um, this or this. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, <laughs> it is. You're right. Whatever you think it is, you're right. Yep. And I like that he's kind of like, yeah, I waited a while basically to let all your your opinions settle. And then, yeah, you're all correct. Exactly. Like he's not, you know, it's so interesting, the artist and separating that from the art. And so that's, Don McLean is, this, this has given this event, which occurred 12 years before he writes the song, he's given it a name. He's given it a new life. He's sort of, it's become one of the most popular songs uh, and people sing about the day the music died, which is not an event, not what it was called at the time, but has become, it fits it so well. And it sort of talks about the devastation and the loss of innocence and the loss of all that potential uh, and just the simple, tragic, senseless moment of them renting this plane and it just talks about how shocked everyone was and that now and basically he also says you know and now we have to go on our own 
Like now here we're out on our own for 10 years. Like that's one of the lines in the song. And so basically like we've had to do this without them, without their guiding influence. We've had to continue on without them. So it's really such a great tribute to the three of them, I think. Um, and they're not, this is not the only tribute to the three of them. There are many, uh, including in Clear Lake, Iowa, not far from the actual spot where the plane went down. They have a, just a Buddy Holly glasses, literally like this large statue of his glasses. There is a, a marker at the spot where the plane went down and the surf ballroom, which is where they had performed that night every year has a concert on the night, the night that they would have died on the anniversary for the 50th anniversary. They actually had Los Lobos go and play among other artists. Uh, but this has become sort of this sort of fan Mecca spot where people come to sort of pay tribute. Uh, Buddy Holly and the Bopper are both buried in Texas. Richie Valens is buried in San Francisco at uh, Mission Cemetery or San Fernando Missionary Mission Cemetery. So Southern California. Um, he also has been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame posthumously. Yeah, 17 years old. Can you imagine that? 17. That just breaks my heart. Um, I can't. And I'm, you know, we, we've talked a lot about Buddy Holly, but Richie Valens, even again, in just a short amount of time, what he achieves as kind of this cross, what we would now call a crossover success. They didn't even have a term for that then. But the idea that somebody um, could take their cultural heritage, merge it with the popular music sound of the day and find a broad success. He's the first Latino artist to really do that. And I think when you look at kind of, if you look at Buddy Holly as sort of like, the the grandfather of all these really classic rock and roll bands. Richie Valen really is that for so mm -hmm. many Latin American artists. Um, Los Lobos, of course, so famously having covered La Bamba, but I think for me, from being from Texas, I think about someone like Selena, who was able to have this massive crossover hit, take, you know, traditional folk music and give it a modern spin. Um, Santana, if you think about Carlos Santana, some of these artists who are really able to sort of merge those sounds, Valens is the first one to really do that. Uh, and he comes from such sort of humble beginnings and it becomes sort of such a tragic moment. I think too, it's worth mentioning that of the three, two of them have had two really pretty well-received and I'll caveat that in a minute, mm -hmm. biopics about them. Um, for me, I think when I think about the day the music died, obviously the Don McLean song, American Pie, but honestly, La Bamba with Lou Diamond Phillips. I don't know if other people listening to this my age feel the same way, but La Bamba was huge when I was a kid. It was on TV a lot. It was like a sleepover movie because Lou Diamond Phillips was so cute. <laughs> um, just Richie. Um, it's so good. Uh, Richie, it's so good. But that was, you know, it was a movie that really captured, again, the tragedy and the youth of Valens, uh, his importance in his own community. And that was a pretty solidly received film. Same for the Buddy Holly story, which stars of all people, Gary Busey, which you have to remember, if you're thinking about Gary Busey today, 1970s, late 70s, Busey was a different a whole different thing. But I mean, he's nominated for an Oscar. The movie is going to win a ton of awards, including for its score. The movie has a ton of historical inaccuracies. A lot of people who knew Holly and played with Holly take issues with the script. But it was another one of those things that I think just a few years after the American Pie song comes out, reaffirms Buddy Holly's place in rock and roll history. So kind of two films that come out about a decade apart, but both right at a moment where you might have started to forget about this event pushes it kind of back into the public mind. And that's what I find really remarkable about the timing of the McLean song too, is it hits 
right about 15 years. So just about the point where the cultural memory is fading and then it just Mm -hmm. brings it right back. Yep. Yep. It brings it right back. I also will note that the dance party tour continued, which is a decision. (laughs) Uh, They have a 15 year old kid named Bobby V who will go on to a career of his own in music. He basically steps in for the deceased Buddy Holly and because he knows all the words of the songs, which is asking a lot of somebody. Holly's bandmates will continue the tour for a couple of more uh, weeks. Waylon Jennings takes over as lead singer, but it sort of peters out after that. And it's really, it is remarkable to me that they like went on stage like two nights later and performed. It just is, that boggles my mind. It's mind boggling, but also when you think about the industry at this time, almost no protection for these artists. They were like obligated to perform or else pay penalties. There was no, they had almost no protection in their contracts. These are guys who don't really have agents or managers looking out for them at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they're kind of thrown out there. And in fact, Jennings would claim that they had been promised that if they performed, they were promised that they would, the record label would charter a plane for them to make the funeral. And they ended up having to pay for that out of their own pockets and never being fully reimbursed by the record label to even go to Buddy Holly's funeral, which is pretty grim it's oh yeah we need you to perform and yeah we're gonna fly you out for the funeral and then never reimburse them is pretty awful Mm -hmm. yeah that's not nice that's not cool but it's just such a great example of an event happens and the ripple of effects of it continue to grow and change and in death these three men are wholly different from what they have they were in life they're frozen in a spot but they've also had this like intense afterlife that would have been very different than what would have happened to them if they had lived uh and so it's really an interesting that's why i want to talk about this because every year on february 3rd i like see it and it's like oh my goodness it's such a tragedy and it's just such spawned so many different things that have kind of come out of this yes and certainly i think uh on the as an end note, it's important to say that beyond the cultural impact, this is just an awful human tragedy, um, and it's a terrible yes. thing that occurs um, that will have a long-lasting impact uh, in our cultural zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, so thanks for coming along with us. We're very far from DC. Clear Lake, Iowa is far away, um, and uh, this was a this was a fun. Um, it's not fun, not a fun topic, but it was really interesting to talk about rock and roll and the cultural history of it and cultural memory and how we sort of remember things like this. And so, yeah, we will be back. Get thee to your favorite music service and listen. Listen to to you know pull it up. I almost built a playlist <laughs> and there just wasn't time before this episode to build a playlist for everybody. But take a few minutes and listen to La Bamba or Chantilly Lace or That'll Be the Day because they're just great songs. They're not just emblematic of the time. They're just great songs. Uh, and even in the 21st century, when you put them on, they make you want to dance. They make you want to sing. Still slaps. I'll tell you music. what. Still does. so yeah thank you guys for your patience we are doing our best to get through spring but we are promising a couple little more and then we'll be back in august with like actual episodes and we'll resume our normal schedule and we're thinking about the fall so if you have thoughts that you want uh some episodes something you want to talk about let us know thanks to our patrons for their continued awesomeness and patronage and all of our listeners you guys are the best let us know what we can talk about that you want to hear about and uh, come on a tour with us. We are very fabulous. And so thank you guys very much. Thank you guys so much. Bye. Bye.